This is a Federal News Network podcast. It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. Today is Friday, February the 11th, 2022, and I'm James Heelan, one of the attorneys from Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. Today we are talking about the top 10 cases from 2021 impacting the federal workforce. We'll give you an overview of each case and how it impacts your work in federal agencies. Joining me for this discussion, I have two of my law firm colleagues. First, we have Connor Dirks. He's a partner here at the firm and has been practicing with us since 2013. Welcome, Connor. Good morning, James. And I also have Michael Scarlett. He's an associate attorney here at the firm and has been with us since 2015. Welcome, Michael. Good morning, James. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you both here. It's nice to do this um, together. So for those of you who don't know our law firm, Shaw, Bransford, and Roth, we are federal employment practitioners. We practice exclusively um, the area of federal sector employment personnel law. So our bread and butter is litigating cases against federal agencies in all matters of federal employment. So we've been following these cases in 2021 as they've been coming out. Um, and the three of us here, uh, we author case law updates for our law firm's two um, e-newsletters, fedagent.com and fedmanager.com. And from doing those regular case law updates last year, uh, the three of us were able to go through and call, distill down to 10 big cases impacting the federal workforce. We got together a few weeks ago and sat down to create our top 10. Connor, you want to tell us how we did it? Sure. Uh, so as James mentioned, we we all write these updates. And so we we keep up to date on and, and help our readers keep up to date on cases that are impacting the workforce. So uh, as we were going through uh, the case law updates we all wrote, we were able to get together and hash it out and debate Um the, the 10 most important ones and the ones that have the broadest impact on the workforce and also maybe the biggest implications uh, going forward. There was some controversy, but ultimately we settled on 10 that made sense to us and we're excited to share them with you. You know, I would say a lot of these top 10 cases weren't really a surprise because um, I remember having conversations with even other attorneys here at the firm as the cases came out. I think of you know, big big ones affecting um, the VA, for example, Rodriguez versus Veterans Affairs. Um, Santos v. NASA obviously was a big one for us, and we'll be discussing that at length uh, later. Michael, were there any cases that were obvious to you? Yes, James. Um, you know, I, I, I certainly saw Braun versus Department of Health and Human Services to be a big case to come out in 2021. Um, really, it started in 2020 and then worked its way up um, in, in 2021 to um, another holding. Um, but there's also some um, cases affecting law enforcement officers that came out this year that I found relevant as well. Yeah, definitely. And the listeners will notice um, as we go through these cases, they really are cases. These are not um, MSPB decisions. These are cases from the federal courts. 
in 2021, just like several years prior, you know, there hasn't been a three-member presidentially appointed board at the MSPB to issue appellate decisions. So we've been seeing a lot of legal issues work their way through to the federal courts. And so when we get through these top 10 cases, they're going to be from the courts of appeal around the country and Supreme Court cases. As Michael highlighted, we're going to be talking about cases that um, seemingly have to do with um, only federal law enforcement, but really, as we'll discuss, have a broader impact across the federal workforce. Connor, so I just mentioned that, you know, these these cases affecting law enforcement officers are pretty high on my list. Um, how, how, how do they um, add up on your list? Well, uh, you know, I write mostly for Fed Manager, so I didn't have as much exposure to these cases as they came in as you and James. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm not sure I would have ranked them as high uh, if I had my druthers. Um, but maybe <laughs> I'm just being selfish since... Uh, that leads the rest of them to be Fed manager cases. That said, um, obviously there there are issues that have impact on not just federal employees but society at large with constitutional issues, um, as well as you know how the public interacts with public employees. So um, I'm I'm excited to discuss them and hear what you guys have to say. Just to give context for our listeners before we actually get into these cases and explain what these case titles mean and why they're significant. Um, most federal law enforcement listeners will be familiar with the case of Bivens versus six unknown named agents, which is a case from 1971 out of the Supreme Court in which the court authorized or said conclusively that there was a cause of action, meaning a way to sue um, federal officials personally in their individual capacities, meaning not in the office they hold, not um, to hold the, the U.S. Treasury liable uh, for paying damages, but to hold individual officers and federal employment personnel um, personally liable out of their own bank accounts for constitutional violations. Now, Bivens itself was all about uh, unreasonable search and seizure under the Fourth Amendment, and there has been some modest expansion of that. Maybe not, maybe not modest. I think plenty of people would say it's actually rather narrow these days. Um, but certainly, while Federal law enforcement gets sued most often under Bivens. Um, other federal employees are technically exposed to being named defendants in those cases. Whether those cases succeed, very unlikely. But still, federal employees could be um, drug into court to, to defend the case. We also have the recent um, Supreme Court decision in December of 2020, Tanzan v. Tanbeer, in which the Supreme Court interpreted um, conclusively the Religious Freedom Reformation Act of 1993. And the court said that RIFRA, as the, the act is known in shorthand, RIFRA allows uh, anyone in government, in the federal government, to be sued for allegations that they uh, substantially harmed someone's exercise of religion. So I think we're going to see a lot of these legal principles and defenses um, to Bivens cases being applied in RIFRA cases that are surely going to be filtering through the federal courts uh, in the next several years and decade um, as those cases go up the courts of appeal and we get more firm definitions of the law. So with all that said, this is a beautiful spread we've got. Let's talk about what's on it. We're going to summarize the top 10 cases to let you know what's coming up. Uh, and then we'll go to break before we come back and start talking about them each in depth. At number 10, we have Moran v. Navy. Okay, so Moran v. Navy. 
in this case, a Navy employee sent one very strongly worded email to his chain of command and got fired for it. Because of the content of that one email, uh, Federal Court of Appeals, the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals specifically, said that his termination was reasonable. At number nine, we have Frazier v. Evans. This is what's known as a 1983 case. This is a federal statute allowing people to sue state actors for violations of constitutional civil rights. In this case, um, an individual sued a local police officer for allegedly uh, violating his Fourth and First Amendment rights. And the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals held that it didn't matter whether the police officers personally knew they were violating the uh, plaintiff's rights, that the test was objective and that the court had to look at what a reasonable officer would have known about that person's rights and not about uh, what the officers actually knew in the individual case. This is a 1983 case, but the qualified immunity defense applies in Bivens, and so that's why Fraser v. Evans made our list. At number eight, Lombardo v. City of St. Louis. In Lombardo, the Supreme Court holds that there's no per se categorical rule making excessive force constitutional when an, when an individual is resisting officers. An assessment of the facts is needed in every case. Beck v. Navy at number seven. This is a USERA case, and it's, it's one in which the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, uh, which is the court that hears almost all personnel appeals in uh, the federal judiciary, they held that intra-rank discrimination violates USERA. Um, that someone can discriminate against another officer for poo-pooing on their lower rank. So that's um, it's a strong position of law that's new um, on, a, on a statute that's been around for a while. At number six, Braun, the Department of Health and Human Services. So agencies typically have flexibility in deciding to use misconduct procedures like Chapter 75 or performance procedures like Chapter 43 to remove employees for performance deficiencies. In Braun, the Federal Circuit found use of either procedures to be fine, but it did note that performance procedures should be used where you have routine performance deficiencies. It chips away at the previous flexibility agencies have. Number five, DeCoco v. Garland. The Fourth Circuit departs from its sister circuits like the Ninth and Tenth Circuit and the EEOC to find that there is no disparate impact cause of action for federal employees under the Age Discrimination and Employment Act. I see this one, this issue going to the Supreme Court. All right. I'm looking forward to that conversation later. And number four, Egbert B. Boulay. This is another Bivens case. This, um, this is the Supreme Court's opportunity to reconsider Bivens, meaning to decide whether Bivens should continue to be the law of the land or whether the Supreme Court should um, cut it off as a cause of action. And in Egbert B. Boulay, the Supreme Court passed on the opportunity, so Bivens stands. Number three is Vestal v. Treasury. This is a fascinating case in which an employee of the IRS shared taxpayer information with her personal attorney. And when the IRS found out about it, they fired her for unauthorized disclosure. And as it worked its way up to the federal circuit, the Court of Appeals held that the employee's removal was valid. So watch what you send to your lawyer. Watch what you send out of the agencies. Number two, we have Rodriguez versus Veterans Affairs. What is a sufficient standard of evidence for agency deciding officials? The federal circuit 
in Rodriguez v. Veterans Affairs said the VA's substantial evidence standard was just not good enough. And number one, our top case impacting the federal workforce in 2021, Santos v. NASA. In Santos v. NASA, a federal appeals court recognized a long forgotten requirement in PIP-based terminations with broad implications for almost the entire workforce. All right, that's our top 10. When we return, we'll start discussing the details of each case, starting at number 10 and working our way over the hour to number one. We'll talk about the facts of the case, the holding, and why it made the list. And maybe there's some disagreement about its placement. We'll have to see. Now I'd like to stop for our first break. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We'll be right back to continue this conversation. Looking for more ways to stay informed on federal news? Every Tuesday, the Fed Manager Newsletter delivers completely free, straightforward news to the federal community. The Fed Manager Newsletter features top news stories affecting the federal workforce, legislative updates impacting pay and benefits, understandable summaries of court decisions written by leading federal employment attorneys, and columns from across the federal community. Subscribe today at FedManager.com. Brought to you by the law firm of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth, serving the federal community for 40 years. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. I'm here with my fellow attorneys at the law firm, Connor Dirks and Michael Scarlett, discussing the most impactful cases for the federal community from last year. Connor, do you want to kick us off with number 10, uh, Moran v. Navy? Absolutely. So uh, Moran v. Navy is a non-precedential case, and I'll, I'll get into in a, in a minute why a non-precedential case is on this list at all. Um, but first, let's talk about what happened here. Well, this is a federal circuit decision, right? It is, yes. Okay. Um, it's a federal circuit decision, um, but it's non-precedential because they didn't think that they were making any particularly new law. Um, with that said, like James mentioned earlier, um, because the MSPB hasn't had a quorum in so long, uh, the federal circuit may not have had the opportunity to, to chime in on a case like this in years past. Uh, so even though it's non-precedential, uh, there's plenty to talk about. Um, and plenty to remember for, for our listeners um, in terms of the things they're experiencing at work and their own employment. So what happened in Moran? A uh, personnel psychologist at the Department of Navy had a uh, position designation change from non-sensitive to non-critical sensitive, which changed what kind of security clearance he needed to have. Uh, he was unhappy with that. And uh, he began a campaign of trying to convince people that it was improper. Um, and that boiled over in an email uh, to 20 people, including his entire chain of command, uh, where the, the employee made some pretty inflammatory accusations uh, about the motivation behind the policy change. He accused his leadership of engaging in fraud, a conspiracy to commit fraud. He called them a criminal enterprise. Uh, and then he, he made some vague allegation that one member of the leadership team was the reason that an employee had mysteriously disappeared. Uh, and he, he capped it all off with um, a nice little warning at the end, proceed at your own risk. So... Right, so this guy thought he was blowing the whistle, right? He put his whole management chain on blast. That's right. Yeah, he thought that the the policy change violated law, regulation, rule, and that was the 
impetus for his email, but the language of the email was pretty extraordinary. So what the agency did was they issued him a notice of proposed <laughs> removal. Uh, and, you know, in layman's terms is they proposed to terminate him. And they said, pretty simply, this email that you sent to everyone was disrespectful and improper. The employee responded in writing, but they, they still sustained that removal. And then he appealed to the MSPB. And at MSPB, the administrative judge was not sympathetic. He described the email as being as delicate and nuanced as a cannon blast. Wow. <laughs> With an air of moral superiority, abrasiveness, condescension, and profound disrespect, which simply cannot be minimized or misinterpreted. So uh, needless to say, the MSPB, uh, being that unsympathetic, affirmed the removal, and the employee appealed that decision to the federal circuit. And the federal circuit uh, sided with the MSPB and affirmed it as well. So, Connor, I, I have this case a lot higher on my list. I know it's unprecedented, but and it comes in at number 10, but I have it higher. I see it's common of application throughout the federal workforce. We often see employees walk through the door in these kinds of situations and call themselves a whistleblower. Um, but, you know, that's their own self-labeling. And, you know, it's not always so. And this case reminds us that whistleblower protections don't trigger for just anything. Employees do not receive whistleblower protections for making basis allegations. And this case tells us they can even get fired for it. You know, I, I think it has um, a good place on the list. I think it's number 10, you know, because it is non-precedential, meaning that agencies and the MSPB aren't required to follow it by letter. But I think it stands as a good lesson, not just for people who are sending these kinds of emails, and we see it happen all the time, but for management, knowing that they are allowed to take action against people who are being so forwardly insubordinate. Um, I think agency counsel and human resources would do well to read Moran v. Navy um, and, and apply its principles in the workforce. Yeah, there are a few things going on here, right? There's a lot, a lot of employees out there, a lot of federal employees and, and employees elsewhere, think that this right to complain excuses really unprofessional communications with your colleagues. Um, and so there's that. And the other thing that's going on there is that to have a reasonable belief that you're making a whistleblower uh, allegation, which is the standard to protect yourself from retaliation, uh, that's not the same thing as a strong belief. So just because you're passionate about what you think is a violation of law, rule, or regulation mm -hmm. does not mean that passion translates into reasonableness. And here, that's where the federal circuit came down, that this was not a reasonable belief uh, of making a whistleblower disclosure. Yeah, there's a lot of nuance to take from a Ramby Navy, but the big takeaway for our listeners is one bad email in the right context can get you fired. And the Court of Appeals for the federal circuit will affirm it. Let's go on to number nine, Frazier v. Evans. This is one um, that started as a 1983 case against a local police officer or a number of police officers who were videotaped uh, making a, a rough arrest um, in 2014. Uh, a nearby observer pulled out what looks like from uh, the decision was an iPad and recorded the officers uh, pinning a suspect's head to the ground punching him in the face six times in rapid 
succession and um, also putting hands on the suspect's pregnant girlfriend. Um, the um, police officers noticed that this person was reporting. Someone yelled camera and they, uh, as the court says, encircled the videographer, demanded the video. They grabbed the iPad out of his hands, began searching for the video of the arrest. Uh, the videographer objected to the warrantless search, but the officer uh, continued searching the tablet. Um, ultimately, the officers didn't find anything. They gave the tablet back. And soon thereafter, the videographer slapped him with a 1983 lawsuit, claiming that they violated his First Amendment rights by retaliating against him for filming while they were performing their duties in public. Now, at the federal district court level, out in the, I think it was the Western District of Washington, um, out there in the 10th Circuit, the Officers raised a qualified immunity defense, saying that no reasonable officer in their position would have known that their actions, if they occurred as alleged, would have violated the um, videographer's well-established constitutional rights. And the district court agreed with the officers. They, uh, the court agreed that the officers' testimony that they knew their conduct violated the videographer's rights and the evidence that they had been trained uh, I'm sorry, it was in Colorado, that they in Colorado had been trained to know that uh, the videographer had a right to video them in a public space. Um, this record said it's an objective analysis. It's what a reasonable officer would have known, not what the officers defending the case would have known. The videographer appealed up to the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, which affirmed the decision. And then he tried to petition the Supreme Court for a writ of certiorari, and the Supreme Court passed on the case. So this is a, an instance where the Supreme Court's non-decision allowed a circuit court decision to stand and carry greater weight across the land. So there's not a whole lot more to say about this case. It applies to Bivens cases where a qualified immunity defense is uh, applicable and to RIFRA cases of impacting the broader federal workforce where we think qualified immunity can be raised as a defense. Well, James, I have one question. Yeah. Um, for I'm sure our law enforcement listeners know this, but for everyone else, what, what is qualified immunity? Uh, it means that even if you assume uh, what the plaintiff says is true, that uh, the officers at issue um, will win the case where a court determines that a reasonable officer, reasonable officer, in that person's position would have known they were violating the plaintiff's well-established constitutional rights. And I, so it's, it's a hot topic and um, there may be coming legislation on it. There's action in Congress. Um, but let's move on to our number eight case, Lombardo v. City of St. Louis. Lombardo involves uh, some police officers arresting an individual for basically trespassing. And um, this individual, he got put in a holding cell and um, he took some steps that um, signaled to the officers that he was trying to commit suicide, unfortunately. And when the officers saw this, they tried to subdue him, but he, he continued to struggle and he, he even kicked one officer. Um, and backup arrived and this individual was placed in a prone position and he ultimately um, passed away. He, um, there was pressure placed on his neck, back and torso and Sorry, let me take that back. There's pressure placed on his back and torso. And after 15 minutes of struggling, he did pass away. Mm. 
the, this is another 1983 case. His family brought a, an action alleging that excessive use of force was used to subdue their son. And just for our listeners, um, we, we just discussed Section 1983 in our last case. Section 1983 is the local and state analog to a Bivens cause of action. And the court's review of what constitutes a violation of an individual's Fourth Amendment rights under Section 1983 would transfer to what constitutes a violation of, in the, of an individual's rights in the Bivens context. Right. So the case law about applicable legal defenses in 1983 cases are also applicable in Bivens cases against federal officers, right? That's exactly right. In this case, this uh, this is a Supreme Court case, right? It is a Supreme Court case. And the Supreme Court, James, is, as we know, the law <laughs> of the land. Is the Supreme Court of the land. You know, I have a little disagreement with where we placed this on the list. Um, I think um, the Frazier v. Evans, which I just presented, would probably need to be higher on the list. But I I think maybe we, we said Lombardo, uh, was more significant because it was actually the Supreme Court taking an action and issuing a decision versus um, passing on a decision in Frazier. Is that right? Sure. So the, the Supreme Court, they, they said that there's no per se categorical rule making excessive force constitutional when an individual is resisting officers. But I see this case important because of its breadth of application. It, it, I like this case, James, because I see its application in a variety of settings. It applies to BOP employees who need to subdue someone, FBI agents ex- ex- executing an arrest, and VA police officers restraining on really individual. It's really an excellent point. We have law enforcement in departments and agencies across the country. Let's move on now to number seven, Beck v. Navy. This is a fascinating case. Fascinating case. Uh, it's about you, Sarah. Um, we have, you know, veterans in the federal workforce, every agency department across the country um, and around the globe. In this case, it started out in 2011. There was a former Navy cook who had became become a civilian employee of the Department of the Navy and was applying for uh, a position with promotion potential. Now, this, the selecting official for that job uh, was a Navy captain with whom the applicant had previous experience. And then that prior experience, the captain found out that this applicant was um, a cook in the Navy. So although their conversation upon first meeting was uh, very collegial and um, friendly, it quickly took a turn according to the applicant. He says that as soon as the captain found out he was a a cook, that uh, the captain really started talking down to him, treating him poorly, uh, had denied him opportunities in the workplace. And ultimately, when it came to applying for this promotion potential position, the captain denied him, even though HR's uh, certificate of eligible candidates had listed him as the best qualified candidate. So this applicant, um, it's really unfortunate. He he wound up taking a job with the Army and taking a demotion to get out of this um, toxic work environment. He filed uh, a USERA complaint at the MSPB. After finally getting an attorney to advise him on his rights, he filed this claim. And the MSPG, MSPB judge said, yeah, it sure looks like this guy was being discriminated against or at least intentionally not selected for the job. But this is fascinating. The AJ, administrative judge, said during the hearing that Navy had pre-selected a different candidate and that a pre-selection, even though it's unlawful, 
was not discrimination based on military service. And so that MSPB judge denied uh, the applicant's appeal. And the applicant then went and appealed to the federal circuit. Um, and I'm sure they haven't gotten one of these kinds of cases um, in this kind of context in a while. And the federal circuit did something, you know, I wish we would see more, honestly, in our practice of law. And it said that the administrative, judge, administrative judge's uh, one paragraph determination um, on the legal issue was, quote, hollow. Um, and that the administrative judge had ignored numerous instances in the record evidencing discrimination. Um, obviously, the court said this applicant was not chosen because of the intra-rank discrimination. And then, of course, the reason it's really on our list where it is at number seven, the court said conclusively, well, I think conclusively, maybe there's some wiggle room in the, the text of the decision, but the court held that USERA explicitly protects performance of service. And for that reason, discriminating against someone on the basis of their rank in the military uh, is prohibited under the statute. Yeah, and I think, James, that it is pretty clear on that point, that just like all the other uh, you know, protected bases with intra-group discrimination, and the Supreme Court has said for a long time that that, that can occur, um, and that's uh, a kind of claim that someone can make. It doesn't matter if it's a member of your own race, religion, sex, gender. Uh, so here, two military service members who have both served, uh, one can discriminate against the other. And in this case, it was a higher ranking military official discriminating against someone who served as a cook in, in the military. Your forecast that we have an, an age discrimination uh, case coming up, and we'll be talking about that after the break. We must stop here for the second break. Uh, when we come back, Connor, Michael, and I will continue the conversation with additional cases from 2021 impacting federal personnel. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. Looking for more ways to stay informed on federal news? Every Tuesday, the Fed Manager Newsletter delivers completely free, straightforward news to the federal community. The Fed Manager Newsletter features top news stories affecting the federal workforce, legislative updates impacting pay and benefits, understandable summaries of court decisions written by leading federal employment attorneys, and columns from across the federal community. Subscribe today at FedManager.com. Brought to you by the law firm of Shaw, Bransford & Roth, serving the federal community for 40 years. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. One team working all three branches, judicial, legislative, executive. Judicial. SB&R employment attorneys offer specialized legal representation for federal managers. Legislative. Lobbyists in government and public affairs advocating for corporate clients. Executive. Produces two free weekly newsletters, Fed Manager and Fed Agent. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth is your one destination for all three branches of government. Online at shawbransford.com. SB&R. Client-focused. Results-driven. Welcome back. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. I'm James Heelan, and I'm here talking with my colleagues, Connor Dirks and Michael Scarlett from Shaw, Bransford, and Roth about the top 10 cases from 2021 impacting the federal workforce. We had some big ones coming out, and now we're getting lower on the list, meaning number six through number one. Uh, these cases are going to be more impactful um, and affect probably more, more federal employees than the um, first half of our list. Michael, would you take it away with number six, Braun v. Department of Health and Human Services? 
Sure. So agencies have long enjoyed flexibility in deciding whether you use misconduct or performance removal procedures when removing employees for performance-based issues. And we see those issues come through our office all the time. Employees thinking that they should have been removed under, say, Chapter 43. But in broad... Well, so so they, they don't think they should have been removed under 43. They think that the agency should have gone through the performance um, deficiency process before initiating a removal against employee. That's right. right. So, but but sometimes agencies use uh, what we call Chapter seventy five because it's five um, USC Chapter seventy five misconduct procedures. Um, agencies can use misconduct procedures to remove employees for performance defects. Right. That's right. And in Braun, the Federal Circuit drew a line. It said routine performance deficiencies should be you should should fall under performance policies. So what's a routine performance deficiency as opposed to something that um, can get someone removed for conduct reasons? Well, here, uh, you know, the the misconduct that they identified, the performance deficiency they identified was, quote, disturbing. Uh, it was, you know, years and years of not keeping adequate records. I think 9%, 9% of his <laughs> cases, right? That's right. So, you know, that that doesn't sound routine. But, and that's why he lost. But uh, you can imagine the stuff that normally goes through a PIP process in the typical process, that's more routine where someone just isn't performing up to snuff. Uh, so this, this really does crack open the door uh, for more specific challenges to whether uh, the right process was used. And performance processes for an NIH scientist came with a lot more rights. Uh, and there could be various amounts, of, there could be many reasons why you would want to go through a performance process rather than a misconduct process, including the PIP. You mean an agency's reasons for wanting to go through a performance process? Uh, well, it's the bitter with the sweet, James. Uh, <laughs> employees have their reasons sometimes, depending on the situation, to want to go through a PIP first because you get this opportunity before an action is initiated against you to prove your worth. And it's a lot of work on the agency's end, right? Well, sure, but the, right. the employee doesn't get to choose how their process for um, a removal action, the agencies do, right? So what's, what's the agency's um, motivation to choose a performance-based process over a misconduct one? Uh, well, the agency's reason could be a lower standard of proof, um, and that's substantial evidence. Now, it, one thing I want to focus on, though, is in Braun, there was a rehearing request which came in 2021, which is why we're talking about it. And Judge O'Malley, who wasn't on the original panel, had a really interesting point, which is that this routine performance deficiencies line that they drew really is comes from out of nowhere. It's judicially created. Uh, and that if agencies have performance policies, they should use their performance policies to address performance issues full stop. So she would take it a little further than the panel took it. But uh, she was in the minority on that one. So save it for another day. All right. And we'll hear more about substantial evidence later. Now let's go to uh, our number five case, DeCoco v. Garland. So, James, I'm following DeCoco because I think this one's going to be going to the Supreme Court. I think it's just ripe for Supreme Court review. The issue is whether the ADA, ADEA allows for dis allows for a disparate impact cause of action. The ADA being the Age Discrimination Employment Act. And so this is actually a Fourth Circuit case. So 
I could see how you guys may disagree on where it is on this list, but because of its impact, I, I, I really think this one's important. And um, the Fourth Circuit actually dis disagreed with its sister circuits in this one and the EEOC by finding that federal employees do not have a disparate impact cause of action against federal employers under the ADEA. Can I explain what a disparate impact cause of action is for our listeners? Sure. So disparate impact claims seek to remove barriers to employment when the barriers operate in a discriminatory manner. And as opposed to a disparate treatment cause of action, um, those claims arise when an employer has treated a particular person less than favorably because of a protected class. So a disparate impact claim is saying, you know, there's a system here that adversely impacts people like me. Right. And in DeCoco, De it was um, it was an a older person. Yeah, it was a 67 year old psychiatrist. Yeah. Tell us about her claim. OK, so um, she accepted a job with BOP. And as a condition of her hiring, she was required to take a physical fitness test. And it was it was pretty excruciating. The test demanded that she complete certain things like intensive dragging of a 75 pound dummy and an obstacle course and climbing several flights of stairs with 20 with a 20 pound weighted belt wow. um, this yeah it's it pretty demanding i don't even know if i could have done it to be honest She's with a 67 year old psychiatrist working in a prison yeah all right yeah um but the, the psychiatrist filed a complaint in federal district court and it made its way up to the fourth circuit well, what was her argument what was her legal argument so her argument was that this physical fitness test violated the ADEA because it disparately impacts employees over 40. Someone who's 67 cannot wear a 20 pound weighted belt and walk up a, a couple flights of stairs. It, it's, it's more difficult for these employees. All right, so it's not that any given 67 year old couldn't do it. It's that generally speaking, people in that age group are less able to meet the fitness requirements than people like younger than them or under 40, right? That's exactly right. And you can, there's a difference between disparate impact and the typical discrimination claim, disparate treatment, where an agency consciously discriminates against one specific person. For an unlawful reason. Right, so they weren't imposing this test on the 67 year old uh, to discriminate against her. They, they just make everyone do it but it is much more difficult for this test to be completed and thus for you to be employed if you are 67 years old. Michael, how did the Fourth Circuit come out on this one? Well, the Fourth Circuit, they determined that there is no disparate impact claim for under the ADA. Or federal employees. For right? federal employees under the ADA. Because private sector employees do have disparate impact claims against their private sector employers, right? That is right. So why don't federal employees get that same right? Well, it's really the way... Um, the Fourth Circuit read the law. It was a very technical review of the wording in the law. And um, while the dissent also had a technical review of the wording, I, I actually tend to agree with the dissent's review of the language. Okay. And so your position would side with, the what is it, the Ninth and Tenth Circuits? The Ninth and Tenth Circuits, as well as the EEOC. Okay. So you think this is going up, right? I think this one's going up there. All right. This is the, not the last time you have heard of DeCoco v. Garland, and many apologies to Dr. DeCoco. Uh, it might actually be DeCocho. <laughs> but that's that's especially an argument or conversation for another day. Let's go to number four, the case of Egbert v. Boulay. This is another one of those cases where it's significant because of what the Supreme Court chose 
not to do. This case started in the Western District of Washington uh, involving a Border Patrol agent, Agent Egbert, uh, was familiar with um, this inn, um, you know, place to stay overnight called the Smuggler's Inn. And it was literally feet from the U.S.-Canadian border and had this reputation for being a place where people stayed before um, crossing the border without authorization. Uh, I, I think I've looked this up on Google Maps and there's like no fence there. If there is a fence, it's decorative and not really impactful. Um, and Officer Egbert had a tip from the owner of Smuggler's Inn that there was going to be someone um, who's going to do an unlawful uh, a crossing from the inn. And so Officer Egbert shows up because he, he tails the car with this, this suspected individual. Um, Officer Egbert comes up. The owner of the inn comes out, seemingly has changed his mind, tells Officer Egbert to get off his property. Uh, Egbert resists, resists, until ultimately I think um, he does leave the property. Um, and subsequently, the owner of the inn gets audited by the IR. And so he is incensed and files a Bivens claim in federal court against Egbert, alleging that um, Egbert had violated his Fourth Amendment right by coming onto his property without permission and for retaliating against him um, for his First Amendment rights, uh, for exercising his First Amendment rights by um, reporting the, uh, the plaintiff to the IRS for audit. Now, this is a, a fascinating case. It, it, it asks the courts to extend Bivens, meaning to allow Bivens action in a new context in which courts had not previously allowed these kinds of actions to proceed. And the Ninth Circuit expanded it. They expanded it. And it surprised a lot of folks around the country. And Officer Egbert petitioned that Ninth Circuit decision to the Supreme Court, saying this is the perfect case for you, Supreme Court, to reconsider Bivens, for you to overturn that case, finally end this cause of action against federal employees um, that, that's really been cast into doubt in many years by the Supreme Court itself and by specific individual members of the court, um, you know, in their public comments. And in this case, the Supreme Court passed. So, so James, why did, why did uh, Egbert think that this was the perfect case? Because it extends, the Ninth Circuit took the unusual step of extending Bivens into a case where there um, were, were to, to immigration enforcement, where there's a national security concern. The court had previously, um, the Supreme Court had previously affirmatively declined to extend Bivens to a similar context in a case of, of Hernandez recently, where there was a cross-border shooting. And the Supreme Court suggested in that case that uh, immigration enforcement and Border Patrol was unique and that it was not subject to Bivens. And so the Ninth Circuit really caught people like Egbert by surprise. James, do you see the Supreme Court taking more Bivens cases going forward? I have no idea. They came out with a rather landmark decision, um, Ziegler v. Abbasi in 2017, where they said Bivens is a judicially disfavored remedy, that Bivens is really constrained, that the, the other federal courts below them had taken it too far. Um, so it really strapped Bivens down to just the the narrow confines of the facts of the Bivens case and the two other Supreme Court cases on it. But those cases are all 40 or 50 years old. So I don't know where the court's going to take it, but they certainly passed on this opportunity. 
Let's move on now to our number three case, Vestal v. Treasury. This is a Federal Circuit case, and I'm sure our, our listeners are going to be real interested in it. In this one, we have an IRS employee who had been given a proposed suspension. She had a lawyer, and as part of her preparing her defense for the proposed suspension, she went into a taxpayer's file and took out a document, sent it off to her lawyer, um, which had taxpayer information in it. She didn't ask permission from the agency first. She didn't ask her lawyer if she could do it first. She just did it. She thought, you know, attorney-client privilege, as so many people do, that she was allowed to share um, this material with her attorney, like, as a proxy for herself. And when the IRS found out about it, they fired her. They said it was an unauthorized disclosure, uh, that sending taxpayer information outside the IRS was such a big deal that it was a removable offense. And I'm sure a lot of listeners who work with systems that have a lot of sensitive information, um, law enforcement, um, immigration, social security, you folks all know how sensitive those systems are and how protected information needs to be kept. Um, and here the federal circuit said that was the kind of offense uh, where the employee's removal was warranted. And I think that this case really has a broad impact across the federal government because almost every agency has some prohibition on disclosing certain information. Some that pop into mind are, are VA disclosing patient information or um, um, BOP oh, sure. you know, disclosing detainee information. Sure. Uh, I should point out, you know, um, in the employee's appeal from the MSPB judge to the federal circuit, uh, she, she only appealed the penalty portion. She said that IRS had applied um, a penalty provision that authorized removal for willful conduct. Um, and the MSP judge and the federal circuit disagreed. They said that the charge for intentionally um, disclosing taxpayer information uh, warranted the removal. They said that it didn't matter that the employee didn't know at the time of the disclosure that her action was unauthorized. It's that she intended to send the information outside the agency and that intentional act was in fact unauthorized. So, you know, whether you know something's wrong or not, you gotta ask permission first. Otherwise it, it, it puts you in this really gray area where you might be removed for it. So if I understand correctly, it's not whether you knowingly violate a rule, it's whether you knowingly did the thing that violated the rule. Right. And knowingly is, of course, a legally charged word. Knowingly means that you know that it's going to break a rule, break a law, statute, regulation, whatever. Um, the federal circuit here is really focused on intentional, which takes away this mental um, mental knowing about what the law is. I mean, it took us ages to really tease out what Vessel v. Treasury stands for. Um, you know, and two days after Vestal came out, I got one of these cases. I got a case where someone sent um, information with taxpayer info on it to an attorney. And so these cases are live. They happen all the time. Think before you act, right? <laughs> Think before you act. Ask permission. Ask your lawyer before you send them any information. Yep. And how often do you see that, James? Employees just sending us information. We, we often have to caution them. Hey, are you allowed to send this to us? Yeah, we're, we're being real careful. Um, with, with employees sending documents. Don't be surprised if your lawyer asks you uh, to review the document carefully, maybe read it from over the phone uh, before 
before sending. So that brings us up to case number two. And we're gonna have to save that conversation for after the break. When we return, we'll wrap up this discussion with the most impactful case from 2021. And we'll look at what legal developments we can expect in 2022. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. Looking for more ways to stay informed on federal news? Every Tuesday, the Fed Manager Newsletter delivers completely free, straightforward news to the federal community. The Fed Manager Newsletter features top news stories affecting the federal workforce, legislative updates impacting pay and benefits, understandable summaries of court decisions written by leading federal employment attorneys, and columns from across the federal community. Subscribe today at FedManager.com. Brought to you by the law firm of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth, serving the federal community for 40 years. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We're entering the last segment of the show with my fellow attorneys, Connor Dirks and Michael Scarlett, and I, of course, am James Heelan. Let's dive right in to our number two case on our top 10 cases of 2021 impacting the federal workforce. Connor, would you take it away with Rodriguez versus Veterans Affairs? Absolutely, James. Uh, so back in 2017, uh, Congress passed uh, their second version of uh, VA accountability law. Uh, that accountability law uh, had a few primary purposes, uh, which were to provide for quick, expedited discipline of VA employees, to strip the MSPB of its authority to mitigate uh, the penalty that VA chooses, and to impose a less rigorous burden of proof on the agency at the appellate level, meaning at MSPB, than a traditional MSPB appeal. And what does that mean? That means they lowered the burden of proof at the MSPB from preponderance of the evidence, which means more likely true than not, to substantial evidence. Substantial evidence more or less means reasonable people can disagree, considering the record as a whole, but it's enough. Uh, And as you might imagine, that is a significantly less rigorous burden than preponderance of the evidence, meaning it makes it easier for the VA to affirm to finally terminate employees. Right, so this 2017 law, uh, of course, came out after the 2014 version of the VA accountability law uh, was declared unconstitutional in part by the federal circuit. So in 2017, Congress is still using VA as sort of an experiment, right, by making it um, reportedly easier and quicker to fire those kinds of federal employees um, in a way that could have easily been expanded to the rest of the federal workforce, right? That's right, James. And you know what? The VA wasn't satisfied. So they took it a step further. And uh, at their level, at the agency level, with their proposing and deciding officials, and even in their investigations, decided that because the law said substantial evidence was okay at MSPB, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. substantial evidence was now okay at the agency. And so their investigatory findings their proposing officials and their deciding officials would only go to substantial evidence. And once they got substantial evidence, which is, again, a very low burden of proof, they were good. Right. Uh, let's, con- let's contrast substantial evidence to preponderance of the evidence, right? But preponderance of the evidence, at least as defined in the MSPB regs, means that something's more likely true than not. Like an objective determination that I, the person issuing this decision, think that this, this happened. That this set of events happened. Right. It's someone telling you this happened. Whereas substantial evidence is more like, this looks like it could have happened. Right. Somebody could have thought this happened. Yeah. You look be. at the evidence and maybe this happened. So yeah. it's much, much less rigorous. So if an agency's taking an action against you, federal employee, 
um, on a substantial evidence burden, that they've really made it your responsibility as the employee to disprove their case against you. That's right? right. And a practical example of this is, you know, someone testifies that they think you did this. And then the VA doesn't interview you. Right. And so, yeah, reasonable people on that record could disagree. But there's enough evidence there to say that you, you may have done. You've done the thing they accused. That's you substantial doing. evidence. That's substantial evidence. And so, as you know, I think it followed the spirit of the law to make it, quote, easier to to fire VA employees. But it, it had this bizarre result where employees could be fired without anyone ever deciding that something happened. So uh, in comes the Rodriguez case, uh, August 12th, 2021. Uh, the employee was fired uh, for alleged misconduct. The MSPB affirmed it. Throughout the process, he's saying substantial evidence is not good enough. Uh, they need to prove it by preponderance at the agency level, or at least make a determination that it happened at the agency level by preponderance. The MSPB says, no, there's nothing saying substantial evidence isn't good enough. And it goes to the federal circuit. And the federal circuit took a pretty big stand here. Um, and so this case has broad implications. They said that preponderance of the evidence is across government the minimum for making disciplinary decisions at the agency level. On misconduct. On misconduct. That you have to you have to determine at the agency level that something happened, that that is the bare minimum. Uh, and that's a principle of constitutional due process, right? It is. And it's also just been recognized. Um, and so the while, sure, substantial evidence may be OK as a standard of appellate review by, say, the MSPB, it is not OK at the principal fact finding level, which is down at the agency. Uh, and, you know, the government made a variety of arguments why substantial evidence was OK, including that, you know, the deciding official like, surely would not have fired the guy if he believed it didn't happen. But what the Federal Circuit's response was, well, in that case, what's wrong with using preponderance? Um, and that if they surely wouldn't fire someone without deciding that something happened, then it's all the more reason to be using preponderance in the first place. They also disputed the government's argument that the law somehow made VA did this because there's nowhere in the law. Right. The, law, the statute itself didn't prescribe what standard the agency was supposed to use in its internal process, right? It did not. And the problem is the VA took hundreds, maybe thousands of actions under this standard uh, right. over the intervening four years. So it's really unclear what's going to happen with those. Some may have missed their, uh, their time to appeal, but others may not have. So it'd be interesting to see what happens there. Right. So the, the VA applied this standard of proof um, not only to general schedule employees within the VA, but also to senior executives. And That's what's right. really interesting, um, the VA SES specific statute is 38 USC 713. And um, those folks removed under Section 713 don't get an MSPB appeal. They get to um, appeal their removals, demotions, et cetera, at federal district court. Right. And, and James, there's a statute of limitations of, of several years there. So um, in those cases, employees who were you know, disciplined under substantial evidence standard may, may still have a cause of action. Right. Unfortunately, those general schedule employees you know, had a, I think it was 45 days or a limited amount of time to appeal to MSPB 
under um, their relevant statute. Uh, but those SESers, they they may still be able to walk into federal court. So I think the VA is going to feel this headache for years to come. And just as a note, the VA still has the discretion to use Title V too, right? That's right. Um, and in many case, many cases, um, maybe should have or could have. But they they like the they like the new law because um, it makes it easier. Yes, and what that really means in practice is fewer uh, procedural rights for employees. Yeah. Now, so this number two case, Rodriguez versus Veterans Affairs, that we've been talking about. Gosh, if it had been more than just VA employees at issue, I think I would put it at number one. I, th- I think this standard of proof issue is a really big deal. Yeah. But our number one case, of course, does impact pretty much, <laughs> you know, the, the grand universe of federal employees. Of course, we're talking about Santos v. NASA. Right. So Santos v. NASA, uh, this is this is a case that, like James mentioned, uh, impacts the rights of all what we would call competitive service Title V employees, right. which is, you know, your all your GS 14, 13, 12, 11, <laughs> right. 15. These, these are anyone who is subject to a PIP, this affects. And this is really a PIP case and a case about the law governing performance-related terminations. So uh, in Santos, and this, this case is about a, uh, you'll know by the case name about a NASA employee, um, specifically a NASA engineer, who got a new supervisor who quickly put him on a PIP once uh, he was under her supervision. Well, key, key to this case, of course, is that uh, Mr. Santos, Fernando Santos, uh, was in the was a reserve officer in the military, right? He was, um, and so due to that reserve service, had some absences that his new supervisor apparently did not like. Uh, she put him on a PIP. He maintained during the PIP and after the PIP that he didn't deserve to be on a PIP. Well, she would, she would give him assignments that were due while he was away on military orders. That's right. Um, and so once the PIP was over, uh, his supervisor failed him on the PIP and terminated his employment. He appealed, Us, using a performance-based action, right? Using a performance-based action under Chapter 43 of the U.S. of Title V of the U.S. Code. And the standard of proof at MSCB in a performance-based action is? Okay, it's substantial evidence. <laughs> <laughs> so, because agencies get, they have to go through all this process, and so Congress has given them expressly this lower burden of proof at MSPB, right? Yep. And so it was easy-peasy for in NASA's eyes to fire Mr. Santos. That's right. And and for, you know, since 1978, when the Civil Service Reform Act passed, the, the thing, the main thing that agencies have to prove when they fire someone for performance-based reasons after they've already afforded them a PIP is, I gave them the PIP, they failed the PIP, at the end of the PIP, their performance was still unacceptable. Right. Um, what, what this case is about is another part of the law, which says that someone can only be fired for performance if they continue to have unacceptable performance after a performance improvement plan. Uh, And so the words continue to became very, very important. How the federal circuit read those words? They read those words to mean that you have to have performance, you have to have unacceptable performance before the PIP is imposed on you. And what does that look like? 
Well, that that's a really great question, Michael, and I don't think it's resolved yet. That's a big open question. But what is what is for sure is that um, under Santos v. NASA, Federal Circuit says agencies have to prove at MSPB that a employee removed for performance-based reasons had unacceptable performance both before the PIP, or at least at, um, that justified initiating the PIP, and then also during the PIP period. Yep, that's right. And it contrasts with the MSPB's finding that there was no statutory or regulatory basis to require that burden of proof. Uh, the Federal Circuit disagreed, plain reading of the statute. So the statute's been there since 1978, but there's a brand new view about what it says. I wonder if that, you know, this is just me opining, speculating. I wonder if we've gotten the same result in this case um, if it had gone through the MSPB first or if uh, Mr. Santos would have given up after the MSPB if he had lost there. Um, you know, we had so many cases this 2021 coming out of the federal courts, specifically federal circuit, impacting uh, the federal workforce because we haven't had a board. Well, Jim, how's, how's 2022 looking? Well, James, before we do that, I think we have a clear answer to that last point, which is that for decades, the MSPB has turned down this this same argument that stat, that there's a requirement to show that someone was right. not performing well uh, before the PIP started. So the federal circuit clearly with fresh eyes um, has a new take on it. And it's a wonderful result for federal employees. Yes, that's right. Uh, you there, It makes it so that agencies have to justify putting you on a PIP in the first place. Right. So moving into 2022, we still don't have a board. The board lost its quorum, meaning that uh, it had fewer than two members starting January 2017, and it hasn't had any members since February 2019. Do we see do we see a board gaining a panel on the horizon? Sure hope so. We sure hope so. But, um, you know, the, the nominations have been made. Um, they're pending before the full before the Senate. Um, and I don't see any movement. Just been slow moving, James. Just been slow moving. Well, those, those on the Hill can hear us. Uh, we'd really like to see an MSPB. Uh, we'd like to see more MSPB cases being in our top 10 list next year. And, you know, that, that seems like all the time we have. I'm sure we could go on for quite a long time about all 10 of these cases. That's the time we have for the show today. I want to thank Connor Dirks and Michael Scarlett from Shaw, Branston, and Roth for joining me for this discussion. Thank all of you for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to our free e-newsletters, Fed Manager and Fed Agent, to stay up to date with all of the legal developments impacting the federal community. Learn more about how to subscribe at the link in the show description below. Fed Talk is brought to you by the federal employment law firm of Shaw, Branson, and Roth. Have a great weekend.